0: Welcome to Pay Tech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guest is Brett King, futurist and best-selling author. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Brett, to Pay Tech Talk. We usually talk about all things payments technology, but today we're going to take a little bit of a sidestep and we're going to talk about the banking renaissance retreat, which you're speaking at. But before we get into that, can you give people an intro to yourself if they don't already know who you are? sure
1: i am um, an author best-selling author seven bestsellers in the banking and fintech space i run the world's uh, number one fintech podcast called breaking banks i'm a futurist also run a podcast called the futurists which is number one in the futurist segment I started the first mobile neo bank in the world called Movin, and I advise uh, governments, central banks, and uh, policymakers around the world on you know the future of technology, particularly in relation to banking and payments.
0: At the Banking Renaissance event, you give a talk on what sci-fi can teach us about payments. What was that about?
1: I looked at the depiction of banking and payments in science fiction, and basically sort of did a uh, a, a study into how this could emerge, the different possibilities. One of the things that comes up is that a lot of political you know, and sociological ideologies creep into science fiction. So in reality, a lot of the science fiction that we see, like the Star Wars universe as an example, shows a very static view of money, banking, payments. So you still have coins and you know, physical currency being used in a highly autonomous society, which doesn't really make any sense. So there's not a lot of creativity often when it comes into uh, reimagining things like money in, in the future. But I sort of examined where, you know, the future of banking will go over the next 20 or 30 years and how various technologies and, um, you know, sociological evolution or revolution are likely to affect that. And gave people a few different options at the end. So, what are those options? Well, you know, in The Rise of Techno Socialism, the book that I published in 21, we uh, looked at, you know, the scenarios, possible uh, scenarios for the future in terms of sort of socio political, economic organizing principles. And there were four outcomes that we looked at as most probable. One is where we reject technology because of the impact it's having on the employment market. So, AI producing high levels of technology unemployment this could lead to the banning of artificial intelligence in some markets to keep humans employed it's fairly unlikely as a scenario on the lower end of probabilities but it is possible we call one scenario which is in the uh, sort of individualistic chaotic future the fail to stand scenario which is where essentially we waited too long to respond to climate change, to the food scarcity that produces that the global eco-refugee problem that will emerge. Um, you know, we just waited too long to respond to these things and create sort of global chaos. And then the two more probable outcomes in sort of planned futures is the neo-feudalist future, where we double down on capitalism and sort of create this permanent stratification between the, the wealthy elite and the poor. There's no real middle class in this scenario and technology is used to accentuate inequality, essentially. Or um, a sort of form of techno-collectivism or techno-socialism where we use technology sort of to produce optimal society and reduce the cost of government and so forth. And while this is probably the optimal outcome for humanity, it only has about a 50-50 chance of success because of the... uh, you know, vested interests in the current system of capitalism.
0: Absolutely. What exactly is techno-socialism? If you can give us a quick definition.
1: Well, it's it's different from classic Marxism in, you know, where we talk about workers owning the means of production. The principle behind techno-socialism is that citizens own the economic output of the nation. And so that the economy is prioritized to filling the needs of citizens first and foremost before corporations and markets. And so that's really a realignment philosophically of economic output and effort. You know, what what you're looking at is you're looking for technologies to improve the quality of life for everybody rather than just for a select few. That's essentially the difference between the two systems. But, you know, if you look back throughout history, 90% of, or 95% of human history has been essentially feudalist systems, you know, feudal systems. And so breaking... That cycle is, is tough, but you know, hopefully the impact of artificial intelligence, the impact of climate change, you know, the gross inequality we see globally today, these will be mechanisms for more of a philosophical change in, in the sort of human operating
0: system, right? That's a good point about most of our economic history being feudalistic yeah. and capitalism having been a relatively recent development. For a significantly shorter period. Yeah.
1: And now essentially, if you look at the world today, um, particularly climate change, you would have to say that in terms of, yes, capitalism has produced more wealth than ever before. But in terms of distribution of that wealth and caring for the human species broadly, it's writ large been a failure. You can't you can't argue capitalism has been successful with climate change. That's not a compatible viewpoint. You know, if in the 1970s and 1980s, for example, we knew what fossil fuels were doing to air quality. We knew that seven to ten million people each year were dying because of air pollution. We could have accelerated the development of green energies, renewables, and so forth, but we were just making too much money out of fossil fuels to do that. So this is you know this is even before climate change. The fact is that, you know, if you're looking for a system that does good for society, that does good for everybody and is, is equitable, then, um, you know, capitalism is not it. But having said that, it was a fairly decent system to get us through the period of the industrial age and, um, you know, sort of that evolution set. But now we have to find what it is that comes next. And I'm not saying I know exactly what that would be. But, you know, we at least have to have the debate in terms of what are the
0: priorities for human systems. Absolutely agree. So how do people in financial services respond to your, uh, your techno-socialism idea? It depends where you are.
1: Yeah, it depends where you are. Like if you're in China, yep, they're open to it. Um, and in fact, you can see in terms of the pressure that's been put on the tech giants and so forth in China recently, that this sort of realignment of the economy there from a equality perspective is sort of already happening. They don't want the same thing that's happened in the States to occur in China. In Europe, of course, because you have a lot of uh, more socialist policies through Europe, there's general acceptance, but some sort of wariness of, you know, changing the system. But in the US, you get this sort of religious fervor supporting capitalism, Where how dare you attack capitalism? You know, and and so it sort of really depends where you are when it comes to response of that. But you know, what I say when I get pushback on this, I say, well, in ten thousand years, you know, if you think about the evolution of humanist society over, you know, ten millennia and and you think about where we're at, do you think in ten thousand years that the very best system we've ever been able to come up with is the current system of capitalism? And that's unlikely. So if that's the case, if we accept that there could be something better, why not start designing that now instead of waiting for 10,000 years?
0: That's sort of the argument.
1: That's a good argument. Do your
0: ideas here have anything to do with your love of sci-fi?
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, my first book was a science fiction novel uh, and never got published, um, which, which maybe I'll revisit that. But So when you look at the work I've done in the banking space and the work you know in technology and so forth, I have been writing short-term sci-fi, you know, sort of 10 to 30 years in terms of its time frame reflected in in the space. Um, And so, yeah, definitely, I guess you could call me a a frustrated science fiction author um, in that respect. Um, But, you know, when we talk about the art of science fiction, science fiction storytelling, and when we're talking about applying technologies and trends to industries, you're really doing forecasting, or in the case of Futurism, we call it super forecasting. You know, especially depending on how far you get out, and you know, they're a sort of different technique. Although storytelling is a very effective way to get the data across in terms of potential trends and so forth. That that's sort of the key difference. One is designed to forecast for businesses and markets to use the information, whereas science fiction doesn't really have those metrics applied to it. It's more just purely
0: storytelling. Another great point. So just out of curiosity, what's your favorite sci-fi series?
1: Well, you know, I think um, actually the trilogy uh, written about the colonization of Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars is probably one of my favorite in terms of world building and feasibility, really getting you think about the, uh, the future of humanity as we start to colonize the solar system. You know, I'm a bit, of a, a bit of a Trek fan just in terms of the physics. Expanse was, I think, very good in terms of its scientific approach. So,
0: yeah, there's a few. Switching lanes. This year, you're coming out with the second edition, I believe, of your book that's on correct. branch banking. Could you give us a preview of that? Yeah, so Branch Today Gone
1: Tomorrow, second edition. Um, we're still debating the title, but I think that's going to be it. The pandemic really saw what we call peak branches globally. So we are now in contraction phase. And you know, most Western economies, branches have been in contraction for at least a decade, if not longer. If you take the UK, they've had basically one branch close every day since the 1990s, you know, so um, big, uh, big decline. US by 2025 will be approximately half of the branch population that they had in 2008. So, you know, you've got this trend happening globally. The real difference here is, and this is the first time in 500 years that we could say this, is the difference in terms of branch operation moving forward is branches are there to support digital, not the other way around. And if you look at the strategies of banks and payment companies and so forth over the last few years, they've thought of digital as a supporting mechanism for their traditional business. But if you are going to have branches in the future, they're going to have to be built in as a mechanism to support the digital business and not the other way around. And that's, that's really the cultural shift. If you're a branch first business, then you'll be out of business by the end of
0: the decade. What part do branches play in financial inclusion? For example, for the elderly or those who aren't digitally savvy, don't branches play a big role here?
1: Well, if we look at the data, some of the highest branched economies in the world, the United States included, for example, has never really got close to full financial inclusion. This is, you know, 100% of the adult population banked. In the US, about 20% of households are still financially excluded, whether that's for access to credit, you know, they're underbanked. And of course, a lot of people don't have a basic checking account in the United States. This is despite the fact that the U.S. has historically the second or third highest branch density in the world. And the same is true of other regions that we look at with high branch density, you know, places like France and Spain and and so forth. And yet you have economies with a third of the branch density of the United States that have very high financial inclusion, such as the Nordic regions, you know, Singapore and so forth. So there's no correlation actually between branch density and financial inclusion. And if anything, in you know the last 10 years, we've seen the mobile phone do more for financial inclusion in just the last 10 years than we've seen 100 years of branch activity during the 20th century provide in terms of financial inclusion. Now, it's not just branch access that is a determinant of financial inclusion. If you take sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where there's close to a billion people that are unbanked, then even if they could physically get to a bank branch, which is a question mark because a study done by Accenture in 2016 showed that you'd have to spend more than your entire month's salary as an average sub-Saharan person to get to a branch But even when you got there, you wouldn't satisfy the documentary requirements for opening a bank account. So identity is also a precursor for financial inclusion. So if you look at India, India mandated for many years, for over 20 years, they mandated that one in four branches should be opened in rural locations. But it didn't move the needle on financial inclusion in those regions because even when people went to a bank branch, they didn't meet the identity requirements to open a bank account. So this is where mobile has definitely closed the gap on this, you know, because you've got lower hurdle in terms of identity requirements for opening a mobile phone account than you do a traditional bank account. But on a longer-term basis, when we look at solving the problem of financial inclusion, branches just aren't part of the solutions. It's reforming identity, and digital inclusion is going to lead to broader financial inclusion based on the technologies. Thanks for straightening that out for us. If you look at the hard data, Ronald, you know, the data tells us branches don't lead to financial inclusion. In fact, in many cases, because of the documentary requirements, branches are part of the financial exclusion problem.
0: We indeed need to work on that digital identity yep. piece, but I think we also need to work on digital literacy right. as well.
1: This is one of the great things about technology is if, if you look at, um, you know, the advances we're making and you can see it with chat GPT and AI and so forth right now is that the technical hurdle to being able to interact with a computer or to use software as an example, is dramatically lower than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. You know, if you, you look back at coding in the 1960s and 1970s, you had to essentially have a university-level education to be able to operate a computer. Now you have an 18-month-old can pick up an iPad and work out how to use it, you know, essentially. So what we used to think of as this sort of technical hurdle for access to digital is
0: sort of disappearing as computers become more capable. You were just at the banking renaissance conference. What would be your big takeaways for our audience listening?
1: Well, I think the general gist, if you heard from the speakers like myself, Chris Skinner, Jim Maroose, and others that were there, Dwayne Blomstrom and, and others, is that if you're not changing your business in banking and financial services you're at threat so this is really it's not a an aspect of that transformation will open up new markets and so forth too yes it does all of that but if you're not adapting if you don't have the attitude that change is a constant in banking and you don't build your business in that way then you are going out of business. You just don't know it yet. So that's sort of the constant. And obviously technology adoption, partnering with fintechs, building AI capabilities, all, you know, uh, moving to the cloud. All of that is part of that. But I think the main message is if you're uncomfortable with change in the banking industry, then you won't have to worry about it for much longer.
0: <laughs> that's a great way to sum things up, Brett. And uh, thank you for coming on PayTech Talk. Thanks very much. You've just been listening to PayTech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guest was Brett King, futurist and best-selling author. PayTech Talk is brought to you by Cognito Amsterdam. Thanks for listening.